Y Group invites all AEC industry leaders to the 2024 AEC Small Business and Entrepreneurship Forum, the premier event for small firms in the AEC sector. Experience innovative strategies and insights on May 21st, crafted by Zweig Group's industry experts. Engage in keynotes and interactive sessions focused on recruitment, retention, and business growth. Join Zweig Group for this unique networking opportunity and take your business to new heights. Secure your spot today and be part of the AEC industry's future. Visit ZweigGroup.com for more information. The Zweig Group team looks forward to welcoming you. Welcome to the Zweig Letter Podcast putting architectural, engineering, planning, and environmental consulting advice and guidance in your ear. Zweig Group's team of experts have spent more than three decades elevating the industry by helping AEP and environmental consulting firms thrive. And these podcasts deliver invaluable management, industry, client, marketing, and HR advice directly to you free of charge. The Zweig Letter Podcasts, elevating the design industry one episode at a time. Hey folks, and welcome to another episode of the Zweig Letter Podcast. I am your host, Randy Wilburn, and I'm excited to be with you today. I'm excited to talk with this next guest of the podcast. We have are always endeavoring to bring the biggest thought leaders in the design industry space to the Zweig Letter podcast. And I think today's guest will be no exception. But without further ado, I'd like to welcome Burke Pemberton, CFO and principal of Stoke from San Francisco to the podcast. And I believe you might be in Colorado, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? That's right, Randy. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I am, I'm in Denver right now at our fastest growing office. We just got a, got the 20 people out here. So that's pretty exciting. Yeah, that's, that is exciting. And you guys, I mean, you guys allowed no hay to grow under you even during the pandemic. I think you added like 19 people at a time when most design firms were not, not adding a lot of folks. How did you manage that? Yeah, well, you know, the word on the street, you know, and I've talked to some of our folks is that, you know, I think we've invested a lot in our talent brand and our talent strategy. And you know, our human capital development and, you know, it can always be better, but we really focus first on our culture, on, you know, just equitable governance and, and compensation practices and, and transparency and good communication. And, you know, yeah, I think, I mean, we targeted, you know, I think an industry normal turnover is around like, you know, 12% firm of our size. And we've been well under that the last couple of years. And, would like to attribute it to what we've invested in our culture. But, you know, it's maybe there's not enough data yet <laughs> to answer that you know, inexplicably, but that's that's what we, we believe at the moment. Right. Well, no, well, let's roll with that. I, I certainly uh, would have no, no problem taking that, that explanation. For our audience, why don't you just give kind of an overarching view of the, the marketplace that you serve within the design industry there? At sure. Yeah. So, you know, we were founded in San Francisco in 2008 as a sustainability consultancy, and we've grown to be an interdisciplinary team of experts in the built environment. 
We work with real estate owners and occupiers to ensure that they're investing wisely in their built environment. And we provide sustainability consulting, energy and performance engineering, real estate, workplace solutions. And we work across sectors to balance financial performance with environmental and social goals, ideally resulting in high performance buildings and, and exceptional human environments. So we have, wow. we have clients with, you know, a lot of our clients are, you know, like the corporate occupier types, but we also do a lot of development work or even AAC driven and led work. Yeah. So, and you, I mean, you guys have worked with like Salesforce and Uber and Google. So you've worked with all the big names and I'm sure you've worked with a lot of smaller firms as well that can appreciate the, the breadth of experience that you bring to a particular project. How have things changed for you guys since 08 to 2022? Yeah. That's, that's what, four, 12 years. No, that's 14 years. I don't want to shortchange you any time that you guys have been in existence. That's 14 years of making it through the worst financial meltdown that we've ever experienced. And then and, and actually, you guys were birthed during that financial meltdown. Right. And, and now a pandemic. So you guys have made right. it through. You guys are survivors. <laughs> yeah. That, you know, a little bit opportunistic, but a little bit of strategy in there as well. You know, we grew up with lead for sure. Lead gold was code requirement in the Bay Area when we got our start. And I, I don't think you can say enough about how much those regulatory drivers have driven our industry. And, and lead was very smart with how they, you know, sort of ramped up the, and kept moving the bar up and up so that a market could develop for all the materials and supplies that were needed to meet that level of certification. And that so we started off doing a lot of lead certifications and, and sort of grew to be the ancillary services that come along with that from an engineering standpoint. You know, you have commissioning, you have energy modeling. So we had through our en- energy engineering practice. And a lot of that work was either with developers or building owners or sort of working with architects to help them deliver on their, their design scopes. And that's how it was in the beginning. And I want to say until like 2014, 2015, when we really started to do a lot more strategic work that was with the corporate sector. And, and that's just such a different type of engagement when you go from sort of meeting a, a code compliance to really trying to do something that's cutting edge, right? And we really wanted to push ourselves to be advising on the most high performance, healthy you know, spaces that were being built in the world. And what happened with the corporate sector was they wanted to do more than compliance and their employees and their shareholders and their stakeholders were demanding, you know, high performance buildings. And that started with energy and then it moved, you know, more broadly to carbon and embodied carbon. And now we have teams of materials analysts that vet all the different types of materials and build databases for our corporate clients who are have standards that we've helped them strategically develop to align with their own commercial corporate sustainability goals and to make sure that their real estate fleet is helping them meet their carbon goals. So that it's been an organic growth, but you know, sort of the demand for the business came initially from the regulatory environment and now it's really coming from the market, I would say. And now that was we were founded in 2008, literally our founder was driving across the country the day to start this company up with his partner the day that Bear Stearns went under. And he's listening <laughs> wow. to it on NPR, you know, on the drive across. But fast forward, if you can, it's kind of like being an auto mechanic. If you can help building owners save money, <laughs> you know, people fix up their cars during a recession instead of buying new ones. Right. And that that's 
Exactly. Right. And so that's where we started. But, you know, through this last pandemic, what was really interesting was even though people started and have continued to reduce their real estate footprint, what we're seeing is a huge influx. Part of this is, again, being driven by the regulatory market where the SEC is starting to mandate scope one and two and eventually three emissions. And and it's going to start requiring these public companies to look at their ESG impacts. And the investors want to know that the buildings and their portfolios are thinking about not just sustainability, but you know the social impacts and the governance impacts and their supply chains. And so that piece of the business has really grown for us, what we would call like our ESG consulting, reporting, and you know, carbon services. Yeah, you know, and as I think of that, I I'm thinking of companies that want to take a much more holistic approach to the not only the buildings that they acquire, but the companies that they acquire to make sure that they are those new entities, those new physical properties are in alignment with how they want to do business and and to do it in a sustainable way that lasts for the long term. So, cuz I yeah. know I don't know about you, I don't know how many kids you have, but I've got 3 kids and I want to I want to see them be able to appreciate things in the future and we have to be good stewards about what we have right now and it is we're still a long way away from getting to that place of global acceptance of understanding that, you know, we only have one earth and we've got to treat it well and we've got to do mm-hmm. the things the right way today, make the investment today for tomorrow. But you guys are kind of at the forefront of that investment that is taking place for those people that actually get it. And some of it is become because of regulatory uh, purposes, but then others, other people that are just like, you know, we just want to do the right thing. Yeah. You know, and we've worked, I think that one of Stokes sort of, you know, market differentiators is, is that we are real estate finance people first. And we've always been able to put the, you know, financial value in terms that, you know, decision makers and real estate organizations can hear about how, you know, investment and sustainability is going to make their investment a more viable one. And that's, that's been a differentiator for a long time. But what we're seeing now is the capital markets are starting to wake up to the fact that having good sustainability business practices, good risk mitigation is just good business practices. And you can see it in the companies that are doing it. You know, they're outpacing the S&P 500, they're outpacing the market. And it's really just, you know, how many, how many times have you talked to your, you know, financial advisor and they, they send you that annual thing that says past performance is not an indicator of future success. It's like that great disclaimer, right? right? Um, yeah. But the sustainability risk reporting is an indicator of future success from a financial standpoint for these businesses. And the investors are waking up to that fact. And so we're really seeing a shift in the market. Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, and it, it kind of lines up with the mission, vision and values that Stoke operates from. And, you know, when I look at, you know, when I look at kind of like the values that guide you on your website, it says that that Stoke is led by core values, the, the values that guide every decision we make and actions we take on behalf of our partners and clients. And you have a number of things on here that you mentioned, autonomy, equity, grit, sincerity, stewardship. These are not words that are normally banned, shared, or emanate from a typical design firm website. And so I would be curious to know, because it seems like this all came organically, I would be curious to know how you developed these core values and was it just was it was it was it 
founder led or was it just as you kept adding people, everybody brought something to the table that you said, "Ah, this looks good. Let's add this to the mix of what we're doing as a company. Yeah. I mean, we, the core values themselves were developed with a small founder group. You know, some of our, what we call our active members, some of the principals in the firm in the early days when we sort of decided to take a non-conventional business path. You know, we all felt pretty strongly that conventional organizational structures and hierarchical business models were broken. And we wanted to subscribe to the belief that people are inherently innately good and they want to do good work. If you just, you know, provide them with the tools and resources to be able to do good work and to develop professionally and then get out of their way. And I think what so often happens in, you know, traditional structures is we, we hire people because they're professional at a job and they, and, you know, then we sort of take all the power away from them and tell them, you know, here's all the rules, here's how we expect you to work and how you expect you to do things. And we just didn't want to do it that way anymore. You know, it stifles innovation and productivity. And, you know, we feel like the workers of the knowledge economy have a lot of their base, you know, the, the, the layers of Maslow's hierarchy of needs for this new generation of workers, they don't, they have a lot of their needs met now. And so they want the opportunity to be able to be creative and to explore and to innovate and to really, you know, to pursue their own passions. And so that autonomy piece is probably one of the more prominent of our core values. And what we've really done is try to create a firm that has structured autonomy where, you know, you're not required to be in an office if you don't want to be. You don't punch a clock. You're not here nine to five. Everybody in the firm has KPIs that they know that they need to hit. They have a billing number they need to hit. So it doesn't matter when you work or where you work or how you work. And we try and provide everybody with good standards and strategies and resources that they can use, but then they can go out and and work the way they want to work. And, you know, you started off saying, how did you grow so much through the pandemic? I think when everybody started working from home, we were like, well, that's what we've already been doing, you know? And we have three offices in Denver, San Francisco, San Diego now, but we've got, you know, team members all over the globe. And we've found a way to make that work. And that works in a consulting environment when, you know, obviously like our engineers have to go on site, you know, sometimes and our project managers um, that are doing TIs, you know, are on site. But um, a lot of our consultants are mostly working on their laptops and on Zoom anyway. And so, that transition wasn't a challenge. And I think, you know, really just that shift towards a results focus um, and allowing people to have that structured autonomy has been what's enabled us to sort of power through that transition to this new hybrid work environment. And then just some of the other, you know, values you mentioned, they're just ingrained in who we are. You know, you do those, (laughs) you do those core visioning exercises and you say, would you work for a company if, you know, it didn't subscribe to this value? And the answer is no, you know, then, you know, it's a core value. And, and some of those on there were just, you know, we were all passionate sustainability people. We cared about stewardship for the environment. We wanted equity and social justice, you know, and that's the impact we want to have on the world. And so building an organization around core values, around a purpose and a mission that way, where people feel like when they wake up in the morning, that they're going to go out and have an impact and do what they want to do. I don't know. I think it's kind of a winning formula. And, and, it, and it's really exciting to be a part of. Yeah. 
I mean, it sounds like it. I, I got a chance to watch a couple of videos, and I certainly encourage anybody listening to this episode. We will put links to some of those videos in the show notes, but definitely check Stoke out because they definitely practice what they preach. And you had a really great, really short video. It was only like five minutes long that kind of, it was kind of ushering out 2021 and welcoming 2022. And you highlighted all of the really outstanding things that happened. And some of it was client related, but most of it was the way that your people came together and all the successes that they had throughout the calendar year. And I was really impressed by that. And it, it spoke volumes because you not only say it, a lot of times people write stuff on their website, they put stuff out there just for window dressing, but you guys are, it, it appears that you guys really are walking the walk and talking the talk when it comes to all of these core values. And that is at the essence, the very essence of who Stoke is as a company. So if somebody were to say, oh, I want to work with those guys. I wonder what they like. You guys are like WYSIWYG, right? What you see is what you get, <laughs> WYSIWYG, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I think that's important because a lot of times, you know, people put on a good front, especially in certain industries and in certain verticals and markets and, and the design industry is no, you know, they're not immune to this. I mean, it happens, but, you know, it's, it's refreshing when you see a firm that really is doing what they say they're going to do and they're not looking at exclusively just, you know, how much can they make, you know, what is their ROI going to be, but they're looking at the totality of the impact that their footprint of an organization has on the world, right? I know that's a big statement, but it just appears that you guys are are putting that into practice. Yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate that. It's good to hear, you know, (laughs) we're our own worst critics, right? And it can always be better. But I will say, I think the way to authentically sort of live to an organization's values the way we strive to is really by being transparent and then listening and then communicating and following up. And so we make a lot of effort to ask our team members, you know, are we doing, how are we doing? You know, are we doing what we said we were going to do? Is there a way we could do it better? We have these constant feedback loops. We do it in, in a lot of different formats too. We'll do it in town halls. We'll do it in engagement surveys, pulse surveys. And even, you know, we have a couple different programs set up where people have a designated, what we call our people role or um, a mentor where they can confide in and say, hey, you know, here's some things I'm struggling with. And, and we, we sort of funnel all that into the governing body in the organization that makes sure that we're, we're staying on top from a strategic initiative standpoint, staying on top of these commitments to our values. Um, And it's not easy, you know, and we don't do it perfectly all the time. Uh, Rome wasn't built in a day, you know, and there's been definitely some iterations, there's been mistakes made. But, you know, if you're not afraid to learn, if you're trying to learn, the best way to do it is to make mistakes, right? Uh, Fail early, fast and often is what they say, right? And so, you know, we've made plenty and uh, we try to learn from them each time and make a little bit less and become more efficient over time. You know, a good example of that is Stoke is a certified B Corp. Um, And I don't know if you know much about the benefit corporation certification or B Corp certification, but basically that's a corporate forum that allows us to maximize um, social and environmental impacts in addition to profits. And we can't be sued as business owners for um, not just being profit maximizers, you know? And so that does, it allows us to um, sort of, take those risks from a governance standpoint that might have longer term financial impacts, but don't, you know, 
aren't having those quick quarterly returns. And like I said earlier, I think you know that's the investment in impact is a long-term investment. And we've been able to really make some riskier moves that, you know, if we weren't set up structurally like that, we might not be able to. And we've seen them pay off over time. Yeah. I mean, you know, it always pays off in the long run to do good and to endeavor to be good. I think it, it's, it always sounds harder to do the right thing, but you know, when you do the right thing, good things can ultimately happen. You guys, I read an article that you guys put out a while ago about biomimicry mm. and it was, there's some really interesting lessons and there's way more than we could ever unpack in that article on one podcast episode. But since you brought up a couple of the topics that sure. were mentioned in this article, I would certainly like to talk about them. And I encourage everyone to read this article in its entirety because you will find some really strong lessons that you can glean from the information in here. And it will take you back to to eighth and ninth grade science <laughs> classes that you probably didn't pay as much attention in as you should have. And there'll be some reminders in there about how not far off we are from nature and the things that happen in nature and how those same those same ideals and happens and its situations also happen and you can show parallels to them within the business environment. But you specifically mentioned a uh, short feedback loops, which mm-hmm. I really like, right? Mm-hmm. And and that and I'm just gonna I'll give a I always like to knock the industry from time to time because I've been in it long enough to be able to do that since the 90s. I know I don't look that old for anybody that's seen a picture of me, but I've been around this industry for a while and you know, back in the day, a short feedback loop was a one-year annual evaluation, <laughs> right? <laughs> right, right, right. And, and that is certainly not what you're talking about. And this is something that it's funny because as as I was reading this, I was like, oh my god, that's that's the thing that Zweig has been talking about for so long. And and that was one of the things that we would drive home whenever we would go in and do a strategic plan with a company. We talked about you know shortening the feedback loop, making sure that people know how they're doing. Don't wait till the end of the year to give somebody an attaboy or an girl and let them know how great of a job that they're doing. Give them information now so they can act on that information and continue to evolve. And And I really appreciate the way you, you, you laid it out there. But since you mentioned it, I figured I would let you go a little bit deeper about why feedback is so important. Yeah. And just for the, you know, the listeners, maybe the first time hearing biomimicry, so biomimicry is using nature to inspire design decisions, right? And the, the premise is that nature's had 3.8 billion years to figure out all of the world's problems. And if you look hard enough, the answer's probably already out there. And so, you know, we've really tried to use nature to inspire, you know, how we work as an organization. And, and like you said, feedback is is one of the critical components of evolution, of survival, of finding food, you know, hunting and gathering and finding shelter, understanding where the risks are, understanding where the good stuff is. And so those feedback loops are critical. And they're especially critical to Stoke because we also are, we are a bossless organization. So that's not to be confused with a leaderless organization. But your boss doesn't give you that annual performance review and, you know, tell you you're not getting a raise because you uh, didn't turn your TPS report in six months ago. You know, that performance 
model is broken. And what one of the first things we figured out when we decided not to have bosses making sort of deciding our fate, right? We really try and focus on results, but we need to be giving each other constant feedback. And so we really work with our team members to break down a lot of the sociological barriers to giving either perceived authority feedback or, you know, if they don't have the same communication style or level of comfort with maybe they're an introvert, you know, or they don't want to speak to somebody with a more extroverted or dominant communication style. And so we've really invested in, you know, a lot of different types of communication consulting and infrastructure. So, you know, some of the stuff we use is like strengths finders, the disk analysis, which is more about communication styles. And then we've used crucial conversations training. And we try and, and, you know, have our leaders just model this culture of feedback where, you know, as Brene Brown says, clear is kind, right? Like we're not (laughs) doing anybody any favors by not telling them what we're thinking, but you don't have to be mean when you say it, you know? And that's the trick, right? How do we communicate our needs and what we're thinking in a way that the other person can receive? And that stuff simply takes a lot of practice and we're always getting better at it all the time. And so we focus on that a lot in our development and we have some structures in place, you know, organizationally where people need to be giving each other, you know, at least the five people they work with the most sitting down and doing monthly feedback. Everybody gets a credit card, go out and take your colleague out for a cup of coffee or a beer you know, and sit down and talk. And it doesn't need to be formal, but if you want it to be, you know, you're an engineer and you want it to be very structured, it can be, you know, but you can have it be super informal. Um, Everybody's got their own style. That's not, you know, the style of how it's done is not, it's really up to each of our colleagues. And, you know, that that in and of itself is a work in progress too. Because when people come over from other cultures, you know, in other work, organizational structure styles, they're, they're not used to, being able to have that kind of voice or being expected to have that kind of voice. Right. Yeah. So, you know, that that's something that we sort of have to, you know, break down before we build it back up again. Right. You know, people have to step out of that comfort zone and take those risks. And, and it's not something that you learn just overnight. <laughs> no, it really isn't. And I, lo- I love that because, you know, as I do leadership training, I, I always look at people that are chomping at the bit to have an opportunity to be a leader. But it sounds like you empower your folks from day one to operate with a leadership mindset, right? To kind of take ownership of things and not wait for permission, but go ahead and, and do it, right? Be intentional right. about some of your actions, I think, which are really important. And, and I see more firms trending towards that way in the design industry. And I, I'm encouraged by that because I think that's the only way that this industry will continue to g- grow. That's the only way that this industry will continue to attract the biggest and best talent. It's not always the work that individuals are doing, but it's also how you set somebody up for future success. And a lot of that is predicated upon how people are able to develop themselves, right? I always say personal and professional development go hand in hand with everything else you do at work. And if you're not getting that, if you're not being fed that, that aspect of it, you're missing out on on a whole side of, of professionally and personally developing your employees to or, or or your colleagues to be the best version of themselves. Yeah, you, you hit it dead on, Randy. And and you know, leadership is it's not about a title, right? It's you know, we tell people 
you know, we have a very clear pathway to ownership in our organization. We want to be an employee owned organization. And we tell people that we didn't, we only hire people who we think have the potential to be a partner. And um, everybody's a leader in this organization. And we talked about the strengths finder a little bit, but like, you know, somebody might have some strong analytical strengths and, and they become a subject matter leader. And we focus on how they can you know, become an industry thought leader and, and, and become a mentor, a technical mentor, and, you know, or to help with technical sales, right? As you know, that's a very involved process. Or somebody has a high empathy and communication, and we put them in a role where they can, you know, like the people role where they can, they can work with their colleagues to help provide them with resources to, you know, learn how to self-manage and solve their own challenges. And, you know, so it's, it's really, you know, leadership is about finding people's strengths and where their strengths and their passions align and giving them the tools and resources to empower them in that area of expertise. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, you're preaching to the choir here and I, I love hearing that. That's actually one of my goals with this podcast is to expose as many firm leaders and owners to different mindsets and different approaches to how organizations are run, right? Because there's no one perfect way but there are certainly systems that we can, ta- if we tap into them properly, because I believe we find success through systems. If we tap into those systems properly, we can find success. So, I, And I know other firms that are very similar to yours in, in terms of how they operate. Their footprint might be different. They may have more people or less. But when they operate with a systemic approach to how they deal with a lot of what we've been discussing throughout this podcast, with mission, vision, values, and you know, following a, a blueprint that has had success over time, I mean, it, it pays off in the long run. You just have to be willing to take the journey, right? Because it's it, there isn't everything that you've discussed on this episode on this podcast is not a short term thing. It's all long term, very long term view of where we're trying to go and where we are today and where we want to be ten years from now. So. Yeah, the system. I'm a systems guy too. You know, systems thinking is is it just is you know it's it's my my sweet spot that I love. And uh, <laughs> you nailed it. You know, it's like I'll give you an example because I've, I've presented on on our org structure. You know, at some AAC industry forums, and, and the first question people always say that it just really pings. <laughs> They're like, "Wait, did you say you have transparent salaries? How does that work?" You know. <laughs> That's I don't know. People just grab onto that every time I talk about it. And, of course, of um, course. And I'm like, well, we didn't just like you know pull back the curtain and show everybody salaries. That there's a system, right? Because you can tell everybody what what everybody makes as long as you can tell them why they make that, <laughs> right? right? And so yeah. we have very yeah. clear KPIs, very clear objectives. Everybody goal sets at the end of the year and puts down their strategic initiatives that they are going to achieve for that time that they've created themselves and that we all agree to as, a, as an organization. And then we hold ourselves accountable. And when we meet our objectives, you know, then we justify the compensation. That's, it's pretty prescriptive. It's very objective. It's very data-driven. It's not fluffy. And you know, it's kind of interesting, right? Because like, we set out to do this, you know, the sort of no good deed goes unpunished, right? Like, we set out to do this stuff with very altruistic motives, but you know, in order to try and create equitable systemic structures, it sort of puts a lot of things that people want to be subjective and, and emotional into very objective and data-driven analysis. 
you know, that's a lot of how inclusivity and diversity is achieved is by looking at the numbers and saying, you know, we need to change this and because there's not parity across, you know, these different stakeholders. And so, you know, that that level of objectivity can be a little bit foreign to people who are, you know, I think I always just mix it up, but I think it's a little bit more left-brained, you know, and are the less yeah. analytical types. Yeah. And they're like, hey, I'm, I'm being right. reduced to a number, but it's like, but it's equitable now, right? And that's not to be confused yeah. with equity. We definitely, we're not saying that everybody needs to be treated the same way. Everybody's unique and everybody's afforded the same amount of autonomy and the same amount of opportunities to succeed in this organization. But that shows up in a lot of different ways for a lot of different people. Yeah. You know, it's funny, as you mentioned that, and I was, as I was thinking when you were talking about transparent salaries and the like, I've actually taught a couple of classes on motivations. And one of the things that I always talk about and bring up is just this idea of it's a lot easier to have a conversation with uh, like two people that work in the same group and theoretically may have similar titles and, you know, why you, how you articulate why somebody might be paid a little bit more than what you're paid when you institute or incorporate the idea of fairness into the conversation. Right. Mm -hmm. And there's that because a lot of times we want to just reduce it down just to the number. Well, why is he making five thousand more than I make? And we do the same job. It's like, okay, well, let me articulate what this person does on a regular basis. It's not so much the value that they bring to the table that you don't bring. It's just fair for us to pay this individual X amount because of these things that they're able to accomplish on a regular basis. And it's not to say that that individual that you're talking to can't achieve those as well, but it just gives you, it creates an easier platform for you to operate from when having those conversations, right? Because they can be difficult conversations, but once you start instituting fairness into the conversation and, and articulating, you know, across the spectrum of an organization, why people make what they make, then it's a much different conversation than just reducing it to ones and zeros and saying, well, this you know, Bob makes the X and Sally makes X. And that's just why it is because that doesn't always compute for people. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, it's like there's it's always a challenging conversation, compensation, right? It's never an easy conversation. But if you can point to some sort of guideposts and say, you know, and make sure you're putting that all the expectations out there ahead of time so that there's no moving goalposts. And try and make sure that the, the data is visible for people to see their progress and how they're doing. You know, all that stuff is really important. And that doesn't mean that we don't get into the situational nuance, you know, the salary conversations. But uh, that's one of the things that w we set out to get rid of. There, there's a method and a reason and a rationale behind transparent salaries and the process behind it. And that's because, you know, historically marginalized workers have not felt as comfortable negotiating what would be considered a fair salary. And mm -hmm. so we wanted to take the negotiation out of the process, right? right? And so we do, we make salary decisions and then we tell we we send people a letter and say here's your updated compensation for the year and if you want to sit down and talk about it, let's do that. Right. Um, and so you'll know what to do next time. And so we get we get folks engaged in the process, but it's not a discussion because People aren't going to stand up for themselves necessarily and ask for what they deserve. And so we need to put a little bit more thought into making sure that, that people are being compensated equitably. And we, we have a whole committee dedicated to that. We call it our Membership and Compensation Task Force. And 
We've got members of every team and our finance and, and our HR groups sit on there and anybody can sit on this group. And we make all the decisions about compensation, profit distributions, pathway to ownership. Benefits. Uh, the benefits lives just in the culture HR group itself. Okay. But, but as far as, yeah, the, this uh, sort of the more monetary types of compensation, mm-hmm. anybody can sit in that group and anybody can put forward a proposal. And so the policies aren't coming on down from on high. They're coming from everybody in the organization. And then we look at a guideline and we say, well, if we did that change, we wouldn't be able to meet this guideline of X percent gross profit or whatever it is. So, you know, we're going to have to tweak the policy this way. But once again, it provides that transparency into how we're making these decisions. And if you have an issue with it, you can be a part of the decision, right? And so it's, that's more of that feedback loop, right? It's like, okay, if you have something you're concerned about, we're providing an outlet for you to plug into, to basically express your concerns. You might not get what you want. (laughs) You might, you know, you might not have all of the context of the organization. You know, it's like when my uh, toddler uses a swear word and I I tell her she hasn't earned the right to say that yet, you know, Um, (laughs) you know, you find out that there's a, a lot of reasons why things are the way that they are that you didn't know about, but at least now you're educated, right? Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, just, you know, I think having that ability for anybody, whether they're straight out of college or they've been, you know, working for 30 years to sit in that group and say, Hey, I think we could do something a little bit differently to be more equitable with our comp. I think that's a big part of it. Yeah. No, I love that. I love that. So I'm assuming you, because of this, this conversation that we're having, uh, is it safe to assume that you guys practice open book management from an accounting perspective? Yeah. Yeah. I have, I mean, you know, most of our financials are transparent. There's, I always say it's kind of a little, there's some stuff that's like, we have what's called our human capital contribution. And basically what that is, is, is it's a 360 degree performance review that we give our peers. So we pick who's going to review us twice a year and they um, take an HTC survey for us, human capital contribution survey for us. Like that data isn't public. To me, that's like Lord of the Flies. You know, it just starts to yeah. get, it starts to get real. Like, like how is that adding value by making, you know, everybody just known that like so-and-so needs to work on their communication or something. That's right. not helpful. That's, right. that's helpful for them. And they compare yeah. their results to themselves and they work on becoming better as an individual. But as far as like company-wide financials, you can go on our intranet and see our P&L. You can see our uh, valuation. You can see our budget, all the margins. And I give financial updates all the time. Our controller is giving them quarterly. We, we send out reports to the whole company with how everybody's doing on all their KPIs. Everything's out in the open. Again, when you don't have bosses, the hive mind is it's peer pressure that holds people accountable. That is like self-management theory 101 is that there has to be this sort of peer pressure mechanism, which is another form of biomimicry. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, you know, and I would adventure, I would probably just to add to what you shared, it's kind of like what you were describing is why everybody doesn't need to know everything. It's kind of like in life too, right? Where you, you're only going to have a core group of, of friends or, or people yeah. that you can confide in and share a lot of information with. And those are the people that can hold you accountable and to do that. And so just like what you were saying earlier about smaller groups of four to five people that work with each other and are able to have that kind of feedback and encouragement and, you know, motivation and even sometimes discipline or, you know, hey, admonishment 
that exists in a, a much safer space with smaller numbers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And you know, you're not wrong. The other side of the coin is too much transparency can do more harm than good, right? You know, I, I love my wife, but I close the door when I go to the bathroom. You know what I mean? Um, so, amen, amen. Right? So, yeah, like, so each of our governance groups, you know, has a, a certain fiduciary accountabilities that are delegated to them, and they get to decide what they think is is confidential to the group, confidential to individuals, or what can be shared with the company about each and all the decisions they make. Like, we don't publish our partner capital accounts. We don't really feel like it's everybody needs to see who owns how much and what their net worth is and all that. Like, how does that help anybody in the company? You know, there's some some things like that that just don't make sense. But we try and provide as much context as we can. And and what ends up happening (laughs) is there's just way too much information out there. And so now, if you had to ask me what, you know, what's the next iteration, I think it's just having really clear, concise dashboards where people have all the information they need to do their job. And if you want to venture outside of that world, you can, but you're not overloaded with information. I mean, look at your phone, look at your email. There's just too much. <laughs> how do you, how do yeah. you focus? How All do you make time. a decision, right? I, I have to shut this thing off from time to time just yeah. to keep my sanity. So no, I, I get that. I get that. All right. Well, I want to try to land this plane. I did have a question to sure. ask you because I'm curious to know how you guys, and this is something that I have, and this is not more, this is not a hypothesis that I've come up with. I know for a fact that the knowledge transfer in our industry is not happening the way that it should be happening, right? From one generation to the next. What are you guys doing? And I'd be curious to know, because you guys are kind of on the cutting edge of the work that you do and some of the things that that you're focusing on, how are you guys successfully transferring knowledge from one you know, generation to the next? And, yeah. and how much time and effort do you put into that? Because I think it's an important aspect of what design professionals do. And I don't think a lot of design professionals have satisfactory answers for the best way to do it. Because we have a graying population of design firm leadership, design firm experts, engineers, architects, you name it. And these guys are guys and gals are retiring out and leaving the industry. And all of that knowledge is going with them. And so mm-hmm. I would be curious to know what what is Stoke doing to ensure that preservation of that human capital and knowledge so that it doesn't go away or dissipate. Yeah, that's I'm, I'm glad you asked. That's a pretty high priority for us right now. You know, we've sort of been in this rapid growth phase for a while. And if you aren't paying attention, you can develop a lot of inefficiencies where everybody's got their own way of doing something, you know, and, and then somebody leaves and, you know, nobody understands how they're managing their projects you know, or, or the subject matter expertise related to that. Right. And so I think some of the stuff, have you ever had Chris Parsons on this show from KA Connect? Yeah, I, I know. I know Chris Parsons. Yeah. Very so well. that guy's and, my hero. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, he, he's, he's one of my heroes. Yeah, too. He, he is, he is so awesome. uh, Chris, if you're listening, Chris, if you're listening, I, you, you've got to come on this podcast and I know that you have an open invitation <laughs> and I know he's working on something with KA Connect. That's really important to him. And he's the kind of guy that does deep work, right? Yeah. He's like, He's like the design industry's version of Cal Newport. So he's he's hyper-focused on what he's hyper-focused on. And I can't wait to see what he's got cooking in the lab and when he comes out with it. But no, I know exactly who you're talking about. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So Chris Barson's KA Connect, Knowledge Architecture, you know, he he inspired a lot of our data-driven management, knowledge management approaches. Um, I saw him speak at a conference 
it was like 2016, maybe. And I was just like, wow, he's got this periodic table of knowledge management. If you haven't seen it, I'll send it to you. Oh, I've seen it. It's impressive. Yeah. And so, <laughs> and so we might have like, you know, seven of those elements, you know, <laughs> and, and there's like another 40 on there. And so we're, you know, we're trying to figure out where the most value add is by biting those off one at a time. Right. And, you know, I'd love to be doing better knowledge management. I think some of the stuff we do really well is, you know, and it is part of this self-managed structure is we have this culture of what I call working out loud. And so what we do is, you know, we encourage people who are subject matter experts to get up in front of the company and present what they're working on, whether it's a cool project or, you know, the latest you know, accreditation that in their field that they're working on and how they achieved it, you know, or something. And so they'll put together a deck, you know, and they'll present it to the company and it gets recorded and it gets filed in our knowledge management system and it's searchable and if there's a taxonomy. And so, you know, a new hire comes in two years from now and they want to know, you know, they want to see carb, you know, presentation on ESG or carbon accounting or whatever it is, you know, and that stuff lives in there and it exists. The other piece and it's it's not sexy but it's it's standardization you know i mentioned like we've looked across the firm for example and been like oh we've got like we've got box we've got dropbox we've got sharepoint we've got like 12 different file sharing programs that we're using let's pick one you know <laughs> how many different task management softwares are we using smartsheet and sketchup or what you know whatever all the different things are bluebeam you know for pdfs and so standardizing it's not going to have all of the features that everybody wants but if you pick a, a sort of neutral platforms that you can develop on that are going to you know, have staying power in the industry and aren't going to get destroyed by updates and be sort of tech agnostic enough that you can build on, a, on an infrastructure, getting everybody working on the same platform so that there's a, there's a seamless transfer between from when a person applies for the job all the way through their life cycle with the organization, it's all in one place. That's the kind yeah. of stuff we really yeah. try and focus on and build those inefficiencies in there. But, you know, I think you were talking about succession planning, you know, Stokes a pretty young organization. When we think about succession planning, we think about, you know, long-term employee ownership, you know, not as much so as, as knowledge transfer, but that's, that's become an issue as we've grown really quickly and we have people moving quicker into senior leadership positions. And it's like, how do they impart their knowledge onto others while they're trying to take on this additional responsibility so that they can pass off their old responsibilities. And so we are, we're having to, once again, it's, it's, it's about standardization. It's like, here's the way we do this. Here's a template for that. Like I said, it's not sexy, but it's, and it's a huge investment. We have an entire committee. Every team has a, has a person, we call it our Kaizen group. And, uh, you know, every team has somebody that sits on this group that it's constantly updating the knowledge space, tools and systems, making sure everyone has access to them, making sure they're updated. So, yeah, I don't know. I hope that answers your question. No, it definitely does. And, and I'm glad to hear that you guys are thinking about it with some intentionality, because I think there are a lot of design firms, a lot of your peer firms out there that are kind of behind the eight ball when it comes to this and haven't come up with a way to transfer this information. I you know, I love the lunch and learn idea. I think I think firms should consistently and always be professionally and personally developing all of their staff. I mean, number one, aside from the fact that it's a great retention tool, you just want to put the best product out there. And because people are your product, you want to make sure that you're putting the best people out there in front of the client. 
that they are well informed and that they know what's going on. And I, I just, you know, like you said, I mean, we sometimes are we're comforted, we're lulled into this sense of false security because we have these mm-hmm. devices. And for those that, for those of you that are listening, I'm holding up my my Apple iPhone 12 or 13 or I don't know whatever it is. Pick the latest phone, and we have those. But there's so much more that needs to come. And a lot of it is transferred individual to individual, not a phone to individual or data or mm-hmm. technology to individual, but it's transferred from one to another. And I think the firms that are going to find success in the future, you know, are going to really take knowledge transfer very seriously and make sure that they have a system in place to afford everyone the opportunity to gain as much knowledge and understanding as they can within their area of expertise and uh, knowledge. So, yeah. And I think, you know, what you've probably seen in our industry that's pretty common is as a lot of these AC industry firms grow, you know, you see that that sort of like principal led regional model where yeah. there's not a sort of a central brain, which, you know, in, in a biomimetic system, you know, like the starfish, you chop off a spider's head and instead you chop off the starfish's arm and, and it's fine. It grows back, you know, and I think there's a lot to be said for that sort of agility of that model. But when you lack sort of, there's certain systems that need to be centralized. And I think, you know, marketing and, and knowledge management and, you know, HR for sure need to be central. And I would, I would say, yeah. you know, finances as well, just, just because you get the, the data so valuable. And so when you've got all these different offices operating on all these different systems, there's a lot of inefficiencies there. And then, like you said, there's a lot of knowledge loss because you're not archiving it in a central way. So I think there is an argument there for some central governance and some centralized standardization. Yeah, no, without a doubt, without a doubt. And if nothing else, and I always ask this question because I really do want design firm leadership to be thinking about this all the time because it is one of the challenges that we face, but it certainly is. It's one of those questions that you need to be asking early and often as opposed to, you know, randomly during some breakout session that you have once every two yeah. years because yeah. it needs why to be at the forefront of your thinking. Yeah, why bother? Yeah. Why, then you just why get everybody's hopes up it? and then you go back to the old way of doing yeah. it, right? Yeah. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Which sounds like Stoke does not do things the old way. And so as we wind this up, how bullish are you about the future from your lens from Stoke, right? I mean, in terms of the work that you're doing, the people that you're working with, the opportunities that are in front of you, how bullish are you on the future and the design space? Oh, I'm so bullish and I'm so optimistic. The demand for the type of work that we do is so pressing and it doesn't matter. You know, it's, I went and saw a, a, a really great speaker. I'm not going to promote him because I don't really love his message, but he's, he's an environmentalist, but he, he sort of has this mindset of like, uh, you know, it's not as bad as everybody says it is, which I don't necessarily subscribe to that mindset. <laughs> but I think what we're starting to see is that whether you're on the, you know, the conservative sides of things or on the you know liberal side of things or everywhere in between, everybody agrees that we need to reduce our carbon impact. We don't agree with sure. how we need to do that, you know, but everybody agrees. And so that is starting to gel. And really, you know, the kind of questions we're asking ourselves are like, you know, is real estate our boundary? Like, do we want to stay just in the real estate realm or do we want to focus on broader, you know, social sustainability and governance stuff? 
when there's so much untapped within the built environment, you know, from, from a, a carbon and um, sustainability standpoint, um, because people are coming to us and they're saying, Hey, you know, look at our supply chain, <laughs> you know, and we're like, you make a phone, like, <laughs> you know, we're, we're building consultants. Right. Um, but, right. but that's when you, when you're in the sustainability sector, it starts to bleed out into all types of operations, all type of sectors and verticals and business models. And so I think our biggest challenge right now is, is, is to focus and to specialize and to sort of hedgehog, you know, to use a, um, a, uh, good to great, uh, Jim Collins quote there, right. Um, is, yep. you know, those are allowed do, do one, do one thing and do it well. Right. Um, and so I think the challenge is to say, do we go after shiny objects? If so, which ones, um, and, and so the way to do that is with strategy and, and that's where the rubber hits the road and that's where it becomes a lot of fun. Um, and so I, I don't think, uh, it's a question of, uh, you know, that the rocket ship's taking off for us and it's just, it's just a question of, of where we're going to go, um, at this point. So I, I would, I would say on a scale of one to 10 of bullishness, I'm 11. Okay. I like that. I like that. That's, 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 uh, that technically that would be off the charts. Right. So, but I like that. So, um, man, this has been great, Burke. I, I, um, I, this conversation has gone over an hour now. So, I mean, you, we've, we've had a lot to share and there's still, we just scratched the surface. So, you know, we probably will have to have you back at some point in time and, and certainly any, anybody that's listening to this podcast, if you're not familiar with Stoke, you need to get familiar with them. Um, their website is stok.com. Uh, Burke, if if uh, you if people want to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to connect with yeah, you? Yeah, send me an email, Burke at stoke.com, B-U-R-K-E at stoke.com. Okay, perfect. And I'll, I'll make sure that we put uh, all of uh, Burke's contact information, website address, and some of those things that I shared with you guys from this particular episode, including that really fascinating article on biomimicry that uh, is it's worth your time. Um, Just read it. And uh, certainly if you have any questions, uh, reach out and and ask those questions because uh, these guys are doing some really great things. And um, I'm glad that we had them on the podcast to share. And so I, I appreciate uh, Burke, you doing that? It's t- it's taken a while for us to bring this all together. <laughs> That's my fault. But I must say, I, I, no, 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 no. It's totally fine. I, I must say, it was well worth the wait. So thank you very much. Thank you, Randy. Love what you're doing here, and uh, it would, uh, it'd be a pleasure to come back anytime. Thanks for thinking and inviting Absolutely. us. For sure. And when I come up to Denver, I'm going to come see you. So oh, please do. Uh, we're right across from yeah, Union Station. Was- I know exactly where you are. There's a nice little um, um, uh, Italian restaurant that's right there across from from you. Yeah, station. it's uh, pretty good. So. Uh, because of the I v. can't think of the name. Of it. I <laughs> yeah. Know, yeah, I know. Yeah, I know exactly Valencia what you're talking about. So, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Something like that. Well, cool. Well, Burke Pemberton, CFO of Stoke. Uh, we we they're based in um, based in San Francisco, but technically they have offices in Denver and in San Diego. We really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks, Randy.
Absolutely. Well, folks, that's another episode of the Zweig Letter Podcast. To learn more about one of the oldest newsletters in the design industry, visit zweiggroup.com. You can read articles online, listen to this podcast, and sign up for a free subscription to the newsletter and have it delivered right into your email inbox every Monday morning. Sign up today. For more info about Zweig Group's advisory services or any of Zweig Group's publications, visit zweiggroup.com. You can also subscribe to the Zweig Letter podcast wherever you listen to it. And please consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. I'm your host, Randy Wilburn, and we'll see you soon. Peace. Thanks for tuning in to the Zweig Letter podcast. We hope that you can be part of elevating the industry and that you can apply our advice and information to your daily professional life. For a free digital subscription to The Zweig Letter, please visit thezweigletter.com slash subscribe to gain more wisdom and inspiration in addition to information about leadership, finance, HR, and marketing your firm. Subscribe today.